I'm kind of off mic. There we go. Off mic. <laughs> Get it? <laughs> There's nothing off mic. It's, Everything we say is, is gold. <laughs> these are the jokes, folks. <laughs> <laughs> You are listening to Original Remake. This is a podcast where we discuss and compare original film and its remake. Or sometimes films with similar concepts, because just like Hollywood, we are that unoriginal. So this being a movie podcast, um, yeah, let's get to it. All right. So joining me again for uh, another Hitchcock episode is our Hitchcock expert, (laughs) Dwight Hurst from the Broken Brain podcast. And I owe it to you for that internet reputation that I'm building as a Hitchcock expert, <laughs> which I am not, really. Well, you know, we, uh, I've got a Psycho episode planned uh, here in a couple months, so I've already booked you without you knowing it. I've got you. Nice. Well, that one actually fits probably more with your, your podcast, so why don't you tell our listeners, in case they missed <laughs> the Lady Vanishes episode we did about uh, a month ago this time, uh, tell them about uh, The Broken Brain. It's hard to find. It's harder to find uh, people who haven't heard that podcast than finding undecided voters in the election. That's what I heard. That's the word on the street. Is it's gone viral? <laughs> Everybody's heard it. So whatever. But you know, we'll, we'll humor those those few uh, late to the gamers. Uh, my name is Dwight Hurst, and I host a podcast called The Broken Brain, which is your weekly dose of mental health. I'm a psychotherapist by trade, and so therefore uh, that actually will fit well to be. Uh, on your episode about psycho, although I wouldn't want to be the therapist for that particular person. <laughs> Actually, let's be honest, I would love to be the therapist for that particular person, assuming he was in a controlled environment where he wasn't going to murder me. But we'll get into that, I'm sure, when we get when we watch that movie. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure, you know, if you uh, get a patient like that, you, uh, your podcasting empire just explodes then with <laughs> all sorts I'll of... Have a- uh, recurring guest mother son uh issues you can delve into and very loving family environment uh, would you say he had mommy issues i don't well we'll have to see after we watch i'd say he <laughs> i'd say he did and he solved them <laughs> the only way <laughs> the only correct course of action <laughs> uh, it's an as yet unresearched cure right we're we're not going to be talking about psycho just yet so that's a it's an extended preview for an upcoming episode of original remake uh, but we are kind of continuing, I noticed, in rewatch for uh, Notorious, which is another Hitchcock film. came out in 1946 and was a big hit then. And one of his, I think, earlier uh, critical successes starring Cary Grant and Ingrid Bergman, Claude Rains. Uh, I noticed last time we talked about a Hitchcock film in The Lady Vanishes that we spent a lot of time on the 2013 update talking about the agency uh, of the female lead. And... Uh, this in this episode we're not really going to have that so much in the updated version which uh this is not a uh direct remake it's more of an homage in john woo's mission impossible starring uh well i don't even know why i should say starring tom cruise you should probably already know that (laughs) just saying words mission impossible i i was shocked i turned it on and i was like tom cruise is in this and i dropped the plate that i was holding onto the floor and it just shattered and then I found a label on it that said 1934, and I knew that I'd been infiltrated. You know, that anyway. is that, that I'm glad you learned something <laughs> from these episodes. <laughs> um, but the, the people you don't know, uh, Dougray Scott is playing, I guess, the Claude Rains-like role uh, of someone. He's doing something. He's, he's doing a lot of emoting. I think he's trying to match Tom Cruise in his expressions <laughs> in this. 
my one of my favorite little little moments that wasn't intended to be funny in Mission Impossible Two. And I got to say, I actually saw this pre-podcast and internet when it came out. My brother and I saw it in the theater. We were both big fans of Mission Impossible 1. And we, we pretty quick, it turned pretty snarky. Well, there wasn't a lot of people in the theater, and he and I were pretty uh, merciless on the movie. And anyway, but one of my, my uh, favorite moments is when she's coming to the hideout, the lair, mm-hmm. and the camera sweeps over the room. And he's leaning against some pillar, like, and he's just swilling or swirling some kind of brandy. <laughs> and 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 ostensibly, he's alone in this room, and he's just snarling. He's like, <laughs> and I remember my brother leaned over and said, "Is he practicing snarling? There's no one else there to see this." <laughs> there's there's a moment in uh, the the classic uh, rivaling Sis and Kane or Vertigo uh, experience of Jay and Silent Bob strike back. Where you see, I believe Ben Affleck and Matt Damon doing the the actor exercises right before the cameras roll, where they they make those weird faces <laughs> and like you know lion goes roar and all that. I, unfortunately, I feel like John Woo. Uh, you know, you were talking earlier about off mic comments. You know, we were, we're sort of preparing our recorders and getting the levels checked. I feel like John Woo just uh, kind of dropped in on Mr. Scott here and was like, oh yeah, we'll use that. We'll use that for his villainous <laughs> face. <laughs> that was his, his warm up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, the, the woman here that uh, is being sent to infiltrate uh, Scott's character, Sean Ambrose and his, uh, I guess, terrorist organization is Sandy Newton playing Naya, uh, a thief. Um, and what I was saying about Lady Vanish is uh, unlike that episode, the updated version I would say probably does a bigger disservice to the female character than the 1946 version of the story. When I couldn't find you, I had to replace you. Sean Ambrose was the obvious choice. Uh, He doubled you, what, two or three times? Twice. What did you think of him? We had our reservations about each other. Is it a little late in the day to be asking me that? No, not necessarily. Airline records. This to Captain Harold McIntosh as the pilot of Flight 2207. Now, as far as the media and all governmental agencies are concerned, Captain McIntosh died on the flight. But in fact, he missed it. He did, however, make the next flight in cargo, stuffed into a rather small suitcase, considering his size. Now, someone on that flight planned an operation designed to bring the plane down and make it look like an accident. Someone skillful enough to bring the whole thing off without a hitch. So there's one thing we know that Ambrose doesn't. And you do think it was Ambrose? You're not surprised. Sean feels he hasn't done the job unless he leaves a lot of hats on the ground. Yeah, the question is why? What was this uh, chimera in the covetous guy? Only Ambrose knows that. Now, in any case, you must recover this, uh, whatever, chimera, and um, bring it to us. In order to do that, I have to figure out how he plans to make money with it. That is where Miss Hall comes in. Excuse me? Miss Hall and Ambrose had a relationship which he took very seriously. She walked away, and he's been wanting her back ever since. We believe she's our surest and quickest way of locating him. And then what? Well, make sure she continues to see him, gets him to confide in her, and report to you.
You made it. Sound as if I was recruiting her for her skills as a thief. Well, then I misled you, or you made the wrong assumption. Either way, we are asking her to resume a prior relationship, not do anything she hasn't already done. Voluntarily, I might add. No. She's got no training for this kind of thing. But to go to bed with a man and lie to him, she's a woman. She's got all the training she needs. I don't think I can get her to do it. You mean it'll be difficult? Very. Well, this is not mission difficult, Mr. Hunt. It's mission impossible. Difficult should be a walk in the park for you. I'm open to suggestion. If you can think of a quicker way to get to Ambrose, you're welcome to try. By the way, you might want to take a look at these if you have any further qualms about getting her to do the job. You know, that's a really good point that I'm glad you brought up. I, I agree, especially if you factor in the time. Like, the, there's a couple of lines that she says to Cary Grant, uh, oh, right around the time, like, before he kisses her madly the first time or whatever. You know, they're having some discussion where she's saying, you know, your disapproval just reeks, and everything you say is, like, this really on-point uh, uh, critique of my character – and you know, that's even when they're being cool together. And and uh, I thought, you know, for the time, she's basically calling him on sort of like slut shaming mm-hmm. or party girl shaming her uh, even before they really used that term. And and uh, I thought, well, that's actually pretty progressive for the time. Whereas in Mission Impossible 2, I felt like not as progressive for the time that it was made. <laughs> and uh, Mr. Hitchcock, not known for being extremely progressive and not being... <laughs> Known for being an actor's director, uh, famously or I guess infamously, depending on your line of work, uh, calling them cattle. <laughs> Basically, go stand in that spot and do as you're told. Yes. Uh, but well, didn't he? Well, we'll get into that with Psycho, but he terrorizes some of the actors, right? I believe. Not yeah. so with uh, Berkman, though. Apparently, this is the the rare time where uh, he sort of respected an actor's opinion and allowed her to really shape the character, even on set. And usually, that was uh, uh, that was not going to happen. Everything was already decided and dictated before they even step onto the set. So I do. And watching it, I did feel that. I felt like, wow, this is a really strong character. In in something that, you know, the basic premise is a woman basically being traded into, sold into sexual slavery for mm-hmm. the benefit of, you know, God and country uh, here. And to what you're saying, the way Cary Grant plays it is not, um, you know, it's not a lovable movie star performance. This is a very cold uh, guy here it's a, it's not a, a heroic role in any sense yeah, yeah and it, i don't know if this was earlier i don't know how this this goes in the pantheon of the grant the grantosphere as i call Cary grant's career <laughs> an upcoming uh, podcast from dwight and myself <laughs> grantosphere <laughs> uh, i don't know if he was Cary grant yet uh i think he was right he, i mean he looked old yeah, enough so. to have been yeah. yeah he wasn't super young but you're right and and i think it's in some ways uh it's really a, a, a tribute to his skill that he played it that way. He played it a little more muted. He played it this guy who has really limited emotional affect, uh, basically. And he he uh, it doesn't ham it up, and he even lets her, I felt like he lets her own some of the scenes uh, where she's being this character, and he's just being like this, yes, I'm this cold government man, and I, I'll do what needs to be done. And um, the, the one thing that I think is a little little tropey 
here sometimes. And and actually, I felt like Tom Cruise's character, uh, Jack Reacher, I think his name is, in the Mission Impossible franchises, um, Jack Reacher Jr., I think is what he, he calls himself. Uh, Come on, show some respect. Senior, if anything. Senior, if anything. There you go. <laughs> He's a little more. He, he, uh, he, he is a, a little less apt to jump on her and get mad at her for uh, a poor choice of words. I think he jumps on her more than Cary Grant does. Anyway, but he is less apt to get angry at her for for her behavior in a situation that he created <laughs> where I feel like Cary Grant's character, of course, was very quick. And this might've been a nod to the time mm-hmm. uh, where, you know, we, we would expect him, the, the hardened government agent to be a little more cool with this than the non seasoned professional <laughs> when he's just like, well, I hoped you'd say no, but I didn't say anything. <laughs> Which is, you know, came across as a little, a, a little snarky. Uh, or as Tom Cruise seemed to understand. Yeah, we did this to you. This Huberman has been gone a long time. Well, uh, is it necessary for you to always address Alicia as Miss Huberman? I do wish you'd be a little more cordial to her. Really? I thought I was behaving very well. Has she been complaining about me? I'm grateful. Might smile at her. Wouldn't it be a little too much if we both grinned at her like idiots? Please, Mel, I want to enjoy myself. Is it so boring to sit with me alone? Not at all, not at all. Hello. Oh, hello. I thought I saw you. How are you? Fine, thanks. Great turnout, isn't it? Yes. Where are they? In a box in the stand. I don't think they can see us, Alex and his mother. Don't telephone me anymore. Just rely upon my popping up. Can you hear me? Sure, go ahead. Heard of uh, Dr. Anderson? No. He's some kind of a scientist. Kind face, 60 years old, gray hair, deep crease in the forehead. Tall or short? Short. Uh-huh. Emil Hupke, heard of him? No. He made um, quite a scene about a wine bottle the other night. Like vintage? He seemed to think of something else in the bottle. Was there? No. It was wine, we drank it. Has he pulled anything since? Haven't seen him since. Anything else? Nothing important. Just a minor item, but you may want it for the record. What is it? You can add Sebastian's name to my list of playmates. fast work. That's what you wanted, wasn't it? Skip it. Are you betting on this race? No. Alex says number 10 is sure to win. He knows the owner. Thanks for the tip. Alex says they've been holding him back all season. I can't but help recalling some of your remarks about being a new woman. Daisies and buttercups, wasn't it? Oh, you idiot. What are you sore about? You knew very well what I was doing. Did I? You could have stopped me with one word. No, you couldn't. You threw me at him. I threw you at nobody. Didn't you tell me to go ahead? A man doesn't tell a woman what to do, she tells herself. You almost had me believing in that little hokey-pokey miracle of yours, that a woman like you could ever change her spots. Oh, you rotten. That's why I didn't try to stop you. The answer had to come from you. I see. Some kind of love test. That's right. 
Well, you never believed in me anyway, so what's the difference? Lucky for both of us, I didn't. It wouldn't have been pretty if I believed in you. If I'd figured she'd never be able to go through with it, she'd been made over by love. If you only once had said that you love me. What happened? Listen, you chalked up another boyfriend, that's all. No harm done. There's no occasion to. You're doing good work. Number 10's out in front. Looks as if Sebastian knows how to pick them. Is that all you have to say to me? Dry your eyes, baby. It's out of character. Except keep on your toes. It's a tough job we're on. Snap out of it. Here comes Dreamboat. Oh, hello, Alex. It was so exciting. A beautiful horse. Do you remember Mr. Devlin, Alex? How do you do? Hello. Alicia tells me you had a bet on number 10. Sorry I didn't get the tip earlier. So long. See you sometime, Dave. It was a wonderful race. Did you have much money on the winner? I didn't see the race. Didn't you? I thought I saw you looking through your field glasses. I was watching you and your friend, Mr. Devlin. I presume that's why you left my mother and me. You had an appointment to meet him. Don't be absurd. I met him purely by accident. You didn't seem very anxious to get away from him. Oh, he's just... I watched you. I thought maybe you're in love with him. Don't talk like that. I detest him. Really? He's very good looking. Alex, I've told you before, Mr. Devlin doesn't mean a thing to me. I'd like to be convinced. Would you maybe care to convince me, Alicia, that Mr. Devlin means nothing to you? Yeah, there's definitely uh, there's a sequence where Anthony Hopkins, who I believe this was his... Only appearance in the Mission Impossible series. I don't know. If, so far, I think Jack Reacher Senior always has a different handler. I don't. <laughs> in the various That's one thing. Versions. I do. You think? Just a side note for the Mission Impossible franchise. Do you do you think that strengthens or weakens the franchise? Because I know James Bond is famous for having, you know, the same M until mm-hmm. you know there's some kind of monumental switch. But uh, what, what's your thoughts about that? Uh, the different handlers. I've always liked it because I believe they did offer this, the first sequel to De Palma, which he turned down, which he apparently had a a fairly miserable experience directing the first one. Mm. Um, And then I think after that, it was a conscious decision to have a different director, a different filmmaker come in and put his fingerprints all over the series. Now I think that has just changed. I think Christopher McQuarrie is going to do back to back. So I've never really, I, you know, I've actually wanted like I think Ving Rain Ving Rames is maybe the only connective tissue throughout, as far as the only other team member. And then uh, yeah, through all of them, and then of course you've got uh, Simon Pegg uh, has now been in a, in several, and I think will probably continue because everybody loves Simon Pegg. I think I'm it's I'm such a Tom Cruise fan. I would be fine that it's just Tom Cruise, and even if it's the same character, they completely recast it. Like I would have loved for Ving Rhames to be replaced with Judy Dench for no real reason, playing the same exact character. <laughs> Luther. <laughs> yes. Whatever. <laughs> um, but I'm also someone you know pimping uh, that upcoming Psycho episode. Uh, you know, that's a direct remake where they change very little. It's almost like a, a you know, a new staging of it. Mm-hmm. So I, I kind of like that in the film series, and I, I like that in Mission Impossible. Now, you do get wildly different styles. Um, <laughs> John Woo, uh, De Palma, J.J. Abrams, and the, you know, the first three, they're dramatically different interpretations of the Ethan Hunt character. And to what you were saying about Cary Grant playing it a bit colder and stiffer, I felt like we get a very similar performance out Cruz in the first Mission Impossible. The way he deals with betrayal. Uh, I can't remember the actress's name. I think she's uh, French, but 
you know, he is much more physical and much more distant as far as dealing with when he feels like she's turned on him. And here, I don't know if it totally works, but there's a scene on the balcony when he has to relay what, you know, the orders that Hopkins has given him. And he, you know, he's, he said, I don't agree with this. And then even when he's telling here, he's almost on the verge of tears as far as like, mm-hmm. it's like, it's so painful for him. I don't know if that fits within the context of this goofy action movie. Like Cruz feels, it seems well, like he's in a different film than what the, yeah. the actual product is. <laughs> and it, it often feels that way with, with Tom Cruise. Uh, I heard some director who say he's like a, a nerve touched by electricity. You don't ever know exactly which way he's going to twitch or react. <laughs> <laughs> he's just kind of like, <laughs> And and that's also one of the reasons why I think he's enjoyable to watch. If only we could get that on a poster. If only original remake was famous enough to get that on the next get that on a cruise poster. joint. Yeah. I I remember the line actually. I remember thinking the line was silly when he says to her, Would you feel better if if I told you I didn't want you to do it? And she's like, Yes, and he's like, Then feel better. <laughs> yeah. And I just remember like, why is he screaming at her? Like they met yesterday, ostensibly. Mm-hmm. Right, they they don't know each other, and that's one thing that I felt that uh, the Cary Grant, uh, well, the Hitchcock piece does a little bit better. Is there's at least there's at least some some implication that they've been spending a lot of time together before she receives her assignment. It may have only been a week or whatever, but we see them like go to dinner together. They're walking together. They're you know he's her handler, and they don't have anything else to do, and then they they sort of start having feelings for each other. Um, whereas in this one, it's kind of like, oh, let me kind of ruin your scheme. Let's drive fast cars together. We'll have sex. And then we're just like super connected. And I, I felt like on the one hand, I liked that, uh, that, that the, the female had the chance to be a seasoned professional of some sort. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, I would have preferred just a line of dialogue. Maybe when he runs into her and she said, oh, Ethan Hunt again, eh? or something like that. So that it was like, oh, there's a history here, too. So that we could believe that he really gives a shit, well, the that's, way to the level that he's supposed to. That's that's the problem with this. You know, this is a summer action movie versus the Hitchcock film is a, a romance. Really, I mean, it is it is about this love triangle. Um, you know, we talked a little bit about the villain John Ambrose in Mission Impossible Two and how ridiculous he is and how he knows he's a villain. What I love about the way Claude Rains plays it in Notorious is he is like, you know, his love for her is probably just as true as Cary Grant's. Like he, he yeah. genuinely feels for her and there's actual betrayal when she turns right. on him. And it, he's not someone who's constantly, well, he's not growling. He's certainly not, you know, practicing snarling. <laughs> and he's, he's, he's uh, one of those villains that is a more effective villain where he's a true believer in his cause. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so he doesn't look at himself as a villain, even when his mother, who is, oh, my gosh, speaking of mommy issues, maybe maybe Hitchcock had some mommy issues. I'm not sure. But when he's like, mother, what should I do? And she's like, let me poison her. All right. <laughs> you know, there's a there's a very chilling kind of kind of how OK they are with this. But you get the idea where he's like a true believer. But then he's also motivated by a desire not to be killed. I, I, you know, and I, I think it led to what was a very effective dramatic piece, even more effective than, than, than uh, stomping on sand to make a gun fly in the air. Even more effective than that was whoa, the walk- whoa now <laughs> <laughs> was the and and the the triple spin. I also like that's a John Woo thing, right? Where we we see any action piece, we have to see from every angle that he shot. It's like it's a it's a shame to waste these. And uh, anyway, but that walk down the staircase. 
where Cary Grant's just basically telling him, like, do you want them to know that you know that she's an agent? You want, to... And then he very casually, so do I start shooting or what are we going to do here? You know, uh, which which was, uh, I thought, much more dramatic. Well, OK, I think that's a new... yeah, very different. Yeah. Very OK, different. that's that's an interesting point there, because, uh, you know, Hitchcock at this point in his career, not as established as, I guess, John Woo, although he was. Um, not quite that established on the American side of things. I think this was his only his third American film, but among film nerds, he was he was very famous for the the work he did. Uh, Hard boiled, uh, I believe Face Off was a big hit right before this in the states. But he had carried over all of those little touches: the the doves that fly before a big big shootout, uh, the slow mo. <laughs> as you were saying, every single angle. Uh, there's a bike sequence oh where gosh. we. Uh, we cut back to like basically the same uh, gunshots from Ethan Hunt. It's like okay, we only had three there, but let's go back and make it like sixteen. Let's go back and <laughs> when he's shooting the gas tank. Yeah, 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 yeah. Front wheelie, front wheelie, front wheelie. And I feel like the Hitchcock stuff, and maybe this is just because he only picks he picks his spots right, like to do it, like to to have an elaborate setup. But even that big tracking shot down the stairs, it establishes not only like the scope of the party, but then like really the small element of the party. The only thing that should matter to the audience is the key. Like, and it's 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 like it's a really cool way to do it. Whereas you know, missions possible too. I don't know if there's any information that we really need to discern from all these stylistic choices. I think the style is the substance in these type of films. Yeah, I, that that's very true. I think that that's a woo thing. There was a the, the I think Ethan Hunt channeled uh, my thoughts at one point when when uh, she's first arriving. It's right after the scowling scene, and she's arriving to see her old boyfriend. She's walking down that pier, and uh, it, you know they're trying to see through the spy satellite, and something's not working, of course, because that's Luther's job in the Mission Impossible series. Any computer guy's job is to be like, "Why isn't this working? I'll get it working. Just wait a minute," and then. Uh, Tom Cruise says the line, isn't there some way to speed this up? And I said, yeah, that's, that's, let's, someone should have said that to John Woo at some point <laughs> for many of these scenes. Luckily, she took an hour to walk down that pier, very slowly walking to, to see him. And, and, and there were many pieces like that where I just thought, okay, let's, let's, there's enough of the slow mo here. Um, it, I, the Amazon notes, tell us that this was originally a three and a half hour film when it was finished and Wu Goodness. wanted to release it like that. And the studio said, no, <laughs> <laughs> the, the studio had a good laugh, like thinking, Oh, you must be kidding. Yes. Uh, oh no, you're, you're for real on this. Um, I can't imagine it's a pretty, <laughs> even at just over, you know, two hours and three minutes, it, it feels like a, a, a weighty action movie. Like it, it and the, the, you know, even the way we introduce, uh, Ethan Hunt, which apparently this is Tom Cruise obsession with, with death or near death experiences like him climbing. And, uh, I guess you are neck of the woods. I'm assuming you live out in Utah on a cliff's edge like that. Of course I, on that cliff, actually, we, we built there right after the film was done. They were like, all right, go ahead. We, but I just have, climb a rope ladder down every day, though, so I'm not quite as hardcore as he is. I, I mean, it's fine. I actually, there's a lot that I really love about this film, and that's one of the sequences. I, I don't know if it makes it a a better narrative piece, but it is saying, "Hey, look at all this money 
we waste it and we put it all on the screen. It's like Tom Cruise wanted to go <laughs> rock climbing in Utah. Here it is. And all it really is, is here's your next mission. Like you, you yeah. could have had him walking in the door to talk to Anthony Hopkins and start the movie there. But no, there we or, go. Or putting his, his rock climbing gear away or something. And right. Yeah. No, it's like if you know, you thought Cameron wanted to see the Titanic. Well, guess what? We're going to want to climb for no, for for less of a reason. It's not even though it's not even as a, uh, he doesn't climb in the movie later. It's not like, oh, there's his climbing prowess. Oh, nope, not at all. Just he's kind of a badass is what we were trying to say. And I think Tom Cruise is not afraid to dedicate a lot of time, energy and money to that message in his <laughs> personal as well as professional life. Well, you know, I mean, if if anything, it it establishes as a character that's going to risk his life. But that's something we assume with our our action heroes. <laughs> Which is impossible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I, I did feel that. Uh, well, I'll tell you what. On rewatch, this has always been my least favorite of the Mission Impossible franchise. Till the last one came out, Rogue Nation, kind of a toss up, but. This one, uh, I just remembered it being really slow-moving because I remembered a lot of these long shots and things. So on rewatch, I actually found a lot more things to enjoy about it. And the thing that kept occurring to me was if for some reason we had an updated Mission Impossible television show, like the old mm-hmm. 1970s, 80s, whatever. They had the two two stints of that show that, that, that came out. Um, this would actually make a really decent hour-long you know, episode of something like that. You you could say, oh, oh, that was a good episode. I think it just needed to be tightened up. You could even drop it down to a 90-minute movie, maybe even an hour-long <laughs> TV thing if you just – even if you just took out some of the walking. I mean, some of the well, walking I, took a long time. I just uh, I just got an email here from uh, Mr. Wu, and he is unsubscribed uh, from Original Remake. <laughs> he is a, he's a live he's, listener to this recording. <laughs> he's, he's got the, the celebrity deep web where he can hear podcasts being recorded. <laughs> Well, what did you feel about uh, what did you feel about Notorious? Because it it doesn't it's an hour forty, and it uh, it feels. I don't think that it feels like oh this could have been extended, but I feel like it's it's got more of an adrenaline rush, strangely, than the two thousand summer action movie. Like I I felt like I was more engaged the entire time and was on I was more tense throughout, and it's it's Uh mainly just a battle. It's a battle of romance between these Mm -hmm. these three people. Well, and I think in a way it it mirrors the actual suspense of some of those situations because you've got not only the the obvious danger of espionage and intelligence, but take, for example, the scene in the wine cellar. I got actually very upset and nervous while they were in the wine cellar because you not you combine the the uh, the difficulty of the espionage and sneaking around with the element of infidelity and jealousy and, you know, some of those kinds of things. This is going to look like this. And, uh, you know, spy dude gets to leave. She has to stay there with this guy. And I, I thought that it very effectively put you in the, the, the seat, you know, that you felt like you were in that situation. Um, even going back to what we talked about, that staircase scene at the end when he saves her effectively, you know, walks her down the staircase and you see the the Germans, uh, who who, by the way, I think the villains were they were German businessmen who were doing business, but then they were going to make bombs or something. I think it was pre-war, obviously. <laughs> that, so, was a, that was a anyway. hobby. <laughs> yeah. They, so they all, they all come out, and and the interesting thing is their their words are, "Oh, I'm glad you're taking her to the hospital. She really needs to go. We're all so worried about her." But yet, I got this very menacing feel. 
where there's like the three of them going down and the mother is like, you know, girl, if you don't say something, they're going to, you're going to think something's up. You're going to say something. And you don't know what he's going to say. And he's like, I'm not afraid to die. And then he's like, no, just JK. I totes am afraid to die. Like two <laughs> seconds later, he realizes, no, wait, I was, that's not true at all. Um, if John Woo had yeah. done it, there would have been a slow-mo sequence of him walking on the steps to figure out if he actually <laughs> wants to die or not. Everyone coming across the, yeah. So, and then, and then, and then he kept, the thing with Woo is he keeps cutting to like real time. He goes from somebody somebody in slow mo to to like like the scene on the pier. She's walking down the pier. They're uploading the video. They're they're moving in regular speed, and when they catch up, it's anyway. So it's slow mo in one part of the world and real mo in another. <laughs> so I, 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 I want to talk agree. about the stair sequence um, because I feel like the the villains there it's it's interesting it reminded me of a scene in David Fincher's version of the girl with the dragon tattoo uh where i, I won't spoil it but let's just say the the villain uh, sort of explains how he can ensnare people who should know better into into his web and that people are more afraid of being impolite then they are like really responding to what they know to be a dangerous situation. So they'll kind of go along with something for fear of offending someone, even when it's in their best interest to listen to their instincts. And I felt like it's really interesting to put this love triangle in the world of spy games because there's a lot, you know, it's, it's a theme of trust there. Like you were talking about, how she puts herself in danger in the wine cellar because she says, okay, the only way out of this is we're, we've been caught together. So we just kind of have to play the card that we're lovers, that we're doing something, you know, behind this Claude Rain's back, which they really haven't been like at that point, but they want to. So it's like, it's all these different levels of truth there. That is their true selves, but they can't really live their true selves. So they have to play that card. But those guys, the you know, presumably the 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 German businessmen here, who just you know dabble in bomb making, that it seems like what sets them off is there's something inappropriate going on here, <laughs> not the bomb making, not the uranium, not even poisoning someone. But it's like, uh, why isn't there another dude touching your woman? Like that's that's basically like, <laughs> but they're they're gonna go along with it, you know, to a point like against their better judgment, but it's like they are saying, we know something's up, but Claude Rains really needs to adapt back to the socially accepted role that they've given him. And when he plays outside of that, that's when the true danger comes in. It's, it's a really interesting way to, to use the spy games with a love story. I think. Yeah, no, it it is. And, and it's very interesting too, because right there, you also have this competing, I, I make fun of that line where he's like, I'm not afraid to die, but, but in reality, you're competing with his nationalism, mm-hmm. you know, as well as his love for her, which, as you pointed out, is genuine, although he is already on board with her being murdered because that's happening. Um, but then you don't know if he's doing that. You know, there, there's a whole lot of conflict in that character that he never says out loud that all flashed through my mind in that moment where I'm like, I actually don't know what he's going to do. And I think that's one of the things that even today when you go back and watch some of these Hitchcock uh, classics or some some works of genius, a lot of times they can be fairly predictable because they invented some of the things that have now become tropes. Um, and, and, and so they were the first to tell it. And so you're like, oh, okay, great. I know what's going to happen in Rocky because I've seen Rocky so many times redone. 
or whatever. So when you go back and watch Rocky, it's even hard to appreciate it in some ways uh, for what it was when it came out. Uh, but it, but it's some of Hitchcock's, like, and this would be a good example. I didn't know what he was going to do for sure. I, I kind of thought they were going to make it out, but then I didn't know if there was going to be a little gunplay or if there was going to be a little, you know, and if, unless you, if you don't look at the clock and realize there's just a couple minutes left, you don't know what's going to happen. Uh, what is he going to do? And I didn't know for sure if she was even going to live, to be honest with you. Yeah, that's the, and that's the biggest uh, difference between the two versions of the story for me as far as one that works and one that doesn't. Because, yes, Mission Impossible 2 is a silly summer action movie, so I can forgive it for not being as nuanced about this character study of this love triangle. But what I can't forgive it for is like they really do have similar setups for the, the villain to act in an interesting way. And I feel like Claude Rains and Notorious is the only one that does that. Because early on in Mission Impossible 2, the Sean Ambrose character discovers, knows, after after the track, he's like, he makes a point, like, my right jacket pocket. Like, this thief has slipped up, and he's aware that she's playing him in some way. And so then, I think it, it devalues the them being together. She truly then is just a device for either of the male characters to control or to claim ownership of again. And I feel like in the Hitchcock version, you know, she comes to a lot of conclusions. Like she's the one that figures out she's being poisoned and you actually see her sort of trying to get out of that world. You see her trying to figure things out. Whereas I don't, with Sandy Newton, uh, she poisons herself. And then it's like Tom Cruise, <laughs> I hope you're good at your job, but you're Tom Cruise. So you probably are. So please save me. Otherwise I'm going to walk, <laughs> I'm going to walk off to a cliff's edge just by myself. Wait. Which was Ambrose's plan. I remember that being frustrating, too, uh, when it's like, oh, let's let her loose in the population. What's she going to do? Do you think she's, <laughs> she knows she's infected? And, you know, think she's, she's just going to go start making out with everybody or something in the, in the city, you know? I mean, she's friendly, but not that friendly. Um, and, and she knows. It's the thing. If she didn't know, then she'd be a threat. But he, would, he seemed to think, oh, don't worry about it. She'll spread it. Why, why would she? She already like self-sacrificed. She showed that she was going to do that. So yeah, there didn't seem to be a lot of nuance there. Um, and 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 I I will say one. Uh, you can tell there's a lack of nuance. One of the things that stood out for me is that one obvious symptom of Chimera, I believe, was the super flu. Was when uh, the guy th- and, and he just thought he was infected with it. But one symptom is exposition. Because uh, when the one dude, when he even thought that he was infected with it, he was just like, yes, so you know how we did this. And then he explains exactly what they did. And you know how we made a super flu. And you know how that uh, germs are mutating. And you know how all these things that I shouldn't need to say out loud, but I'll go on for literally like two or three minutes of plot exposition. And Tom Cruise is like, no, oh, cool. That was, that was easy. Yeah, thank you for telling us all of everything that we needed to know. And it really, it was one of the only moments of true exposition in the movie because, as you put it, the stuff, the substance was the style. Well, it's very, it's very minimal elements involved here, right? Love triangle, uh, his, you know, MacGuffin of choice. This case, uh, uranium uh, that they're out for. Uh, but I think the problem I have, I, I love that Tom Cruise is willing to treat Mission Impossible Two like Magnolia or Eyes Wide Shut. Like you know, he it, he does treat every project as if it's equally valid for him to be performing in it. He's not he's yeah. not taking the lap off. But I don't really like that he is so committed in his love for her and emotes so strongly around her. As you you mentioned him yelling at her because it doesn't it doesn't feel 
necessary to him on a personal level to go save her. It still feels like it's just part of the job. Like, Oh, he's an IMF agent. He has to go save her. He has to save the country. Whereas when Cary Grant goes at the end to like, he has to find her after she's been poisoned. Like when she's on her deathbed, he isn't just like, well, I've got to save you because it somehow affects the mission because really that's already accomplished. He, he unburdens himself and says, you know, he proclaims his love for then. And that's after uh, an entire movie of him being very cold. And as you said, part of the time period, you're wondering if can he accept in that worldview damaged goods in a way. Mm-hmm. And I, that's yeah. a bigger character leap than anything that Tom Cruise has to. I mean, he just he does a leap off a motorcycle into another man's <laughs> chest, <laughs> which I'm not he's, knocking. He's leaping all over the place. Yeah. Uh, I, yeah, his gymnastic flipping when he's doing the fight scenes and stuff too, where it's like obvious wire work. Yeah. Where it's like, come on, Tom Cruise can actually fight really well in movies. Why are you doing that? Is and his uh, trained doves. I can only assume that IMF puts a lot of money into training doves to help with Dwight. with extraction missions. He climbs rocks in Utah. The man knows no limits. <laughs> he can do anything. He's like, come to me, come to me, my doves. <laughs> That would have made this not not any less believable if Ethan Hunt would have been like, and the doves respond. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm with you on that. I think I think it's uh, obviously we are talking about like we said very different kinds of movies. I will say this for me though marked, uh, and I know it was just the second in the franchise, but I felt like Mission Impossible One uh, to talk just a minute about that franchise tried really hard to be mostly a spy movie mm-hmm. and everything else secondary, yeah. uh, which was interesting because it was still made at a time where we were making spy movies similar in a way to how like Jason, uh, the first, the first born movie uh, was still writing the coattails of that a little bit to where it was, it was probably 50, 50 action and spy movie. And now they've launched into when like the last Jason Bourne, I think is just like, look how good he is at punching guys. Um, whenever he's not on the job, whenever he's not being hounded by uh, nefarious white dudes at the CIA, he just gets into a circle of big, I don't know, Russian brawlers and starts punching people for money. <laughs> did, I, I remember looking at the preview of the most recent Born and saying, how did it take this long for us to cycle through old white guys <laughs> to play CIA administrators until we got to Tommy Lee Jones? How has he not been in this franchise before? So I don't know who they're going to pull out next that I'm going to say, oh, that guy too, yeah. I'm sure he's not happy being the uh, fourth overall pick in that particular fantasy white dude draft. <laughs> <laughs> so you're you're talking about it as a, you know as an action movie. Do you think that in adapting uh, a work like Notorious, uh, this is something that should be encouraged? Even if they are doing a big dumb summer action movie, do you like that they took elements out of a classic love story? And I mean, are, we're very open about it when the, the film's coming out. Their influences and uh, it's it is substituting you know uranium for this chimera disease, and the same love triangle exists. It's just executed in a completely and, different and, genre. Uh, Replacing German with some kind of indecipherable European accent. Uh, I, I wasn't well, sure where, Star he, Wars where he was from. taught us that. If you have a European accent, you're evil, even in you're space. I, there's there's the heist planning where he's like, Ethan Hunt, he's going, did you go jump through? I'm like, what the hell is he saying? I don't understand. Uh, no, so I actually do like it. I think that's one of the reasons that it would make, if you if you shortened it down and tightened it up, and like I said, if you even if you just released it as an episode of the of the new IMF TV show that you and I are going to write, right? Exactly. I think uh, I, I think 
that's actually probably why it's enjoyable to watch is it has some of those. And I, I personally really like when things are influenced uh, by something classic and that they can call back to it. I don't, and, and I'm with you too. I like to see the remakes, but I, I don't mind when uh, people take the idea of a remake and then twist it for something else. There's a, a writer, a friend of mine, uh, Brandon Nobles, who uh, is, is he just, he just finished writing a, a long form story called the Scarecrow Trials, which is essentially a sort of science fiction update of Animal Farm, where it replaces the animals with robots and looks at the morality that they develop when left to their own devices, so to speak, even though they are devices. Anyway, so I I really like that kind of uh, reimagining that people will do. Hillary Jordan did it with, uh, uh, she redid the Scarlet Letter recently in another kind of like semi-futuristic tone. And so, you know, you see that where there's influences and sometimes they're not as good as the classics that they're that they're remaking or that they're using, but I still think it makes them a little bit better. I'm going to put you on the spot here because we didn't do this last time. Uh, when I was editing, I was like, oh, crap, I forgot. This would be a really – it's a fun exercise me and uh, my co-host Peter do um, where we re- remake it again, yet again. So on the uh, leaping off there, if you're going to put this story into yet another genre, not an action film and not a spy romance what would you put it in, and who would the love triangle be? Who would you cast as the three actors? This is also the, the only, really the only part I edit because I put people on the spot, and then I just cut out the silence. <laughs> you just cut out the long periods of silence. So whenever you finally, happen. whenever you think of it, all you have to say is like, "I've I've had one on the brain, Mike." <laughs> it cuts immediately <laughs> to you. Just <laughs> that's pretty good. And then and then you can and if no one comes up with anything, you could always imitate their voice and edit that in later. Like, I think it should be Channing Tatum. Um, that's who you usually put into all remakes, right? Channing Tatum. That's also the accent I use for everyone. <laughs> Utah, uh, Australian, doesn't matter. Thanks for having me on the show, Mike. Um, it's like a 1920s paper point, I think is the affectation I'm going for. Wow, what genres are left? So we can't go spy or action. Oh, no, can't go romance or action. Well, there's going to be elements of romance, but you could, you know, you could put it, uh, it could be sci-fi. I would say, yeah, space. yeah, you know, um, if, if you did something like this, well, <laughs> the next standalone Star Wars franchise could maybe benefit from a little bit of this. Let's have, let, let's have something going on there with, uh, a Jedi have, no, I'm not going to do that. That's terrible. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I would say, uh, you know, there's a couple of ways you could go. You could go more, more dramatic espionage, play up that side of it, or you could go sort of madcap comedy direction. Um, and I think it would lend itself actually to either one of those kind of like a Moliere kind of like comedy twist to this, uh, you know, would be, would be one way to go where, where you're doing that. Um, with somebody like uh, John Hamm in the Cary Grant role, Mm-hmm. Role, all right. Comedy, because he he does that sort of deadpan comedy. He'd have to be the deadpan comedy character. There we go. And uh, as far as the, the, the woman, let's see. We need someone. I don't know who's our enemy now. Not Germans anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. Donald Trump. <laughs> Sorry. Is it? Uh, you know, it would be, it would have to be stateside enemy, right? Hello, <laughs> Donald Trump is the German character. <laughs> is that what we're doing? 
And it's like, you know, I think that's where we would just get a flat no. It would be a 10-minute movie. It'd be like, we want you to infiltrate and sleep. Nope. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. End of the world? Well, you know, we've had a good run. Uh, <laughs> okay, so uh, i got to find her name. Um, Shorey Agdashalu. Yeah, I don't like getting my answers. You're really, you're really not selling me on the star power of this. This is not Carrie yeah. and, <laughs> and Bergman. Let me go back. <laughs> you started okay, off you know strong what? with John Hamm, though. Yeah, you know what? I'm gonna, I'm gonna stay with that. Hang on one second. We can edit this down, right? So, you know what's been on my mind about that? I'm glad you asked. <laughs> As I seamlessly <laughs> come up. <laughs> I was totally prepared for this question. I think John Hamm would be uh, good in the role of the Cary Grant character. And Kristen Wiig. Okay, yeah. Let's say her last name. Yeah. Kristen Wiig could play the lead. Um, I think she's got the comedy chops for it. Of course, I just watched Ghostbusters, so, you know, that might be on my mind. And and if you made this into kind of a, a spy comedy, that's probably something that's a little bit more more in keeping. I think, uh, kind of going with your idea, rather than go with a, a, a vague ethnicity that is our scary enemy, if we did go with some kind of, uh, with, with the tone of things now, it probably would be some kind of a billionaire, uh, some kind of a, a Trump-esque character. And so if we're going to go with that, I don't know. I mean, it may be a little too on the nose to have Alec Baldwin play that person. <laughs> yeah, he's uh, SNL's beat us to that, that uh, yeah. possibility. But it needs to be someone who's not, not Trumpy. You know what? Let's go with Fassbender. Let's Fassbend this one. What okay. if Michael Fassbender played the, uh, the other part of that triangle? And I think with that kind of a cast, here's the thing. You could go uh, comedic or you could go hardcore espionage, which I think would be the two directions to go. Hardcore espionage. Uh, would you'd also want to throw Bill Nye in there somewhere? He'd have to be some handler or something. I'm talking the older British actor Bill Nye, not the science guy. Yeah, yeah, the the, the pirate, right? <laughs> like the squid face guy. The yeah, yeah, that guy. Yeah, the one who's uh, played played a, a spy a time or two as well. Uh, so, yes that that was my uh, that was my thirty second analysis uh, tightly. <laughs> Tightly pared down into just ignore all those other comments that maybe didn't make it through the cutting room floor. I was, going. I was trying to think of uh, actors from our respective states, and I don't know. Uh, the only one I can think of from Utah is Aaron Eckhart, right? Is he from Utah? Ooh, good choice. Yes. So I was going to have Aaron Eckhart play you, and of course I was going to have Michael Shannon play me. And it was going to be about feuding podcasters, and they send uh, a co-host <laughs> to infiltrate the other show as a co-host and bring it down by saying really offensive things and tweeting out really offensive things. So Kristen Wiig would fit that. Oh, she could, she could do that. You know, she could be she that. Could totally do that. that she could play uh, Carly. Yeah, Carly could, Beaumont. <laughs> so you could have just sort of this uh, terrorism through comedy going on and just destroying someone's online reputation so but it, yeah wow, so you're fine with you're fine with genre yeah so you're fine with yeah. aaron eckhart as you because i of course want yeah, Michael Shannon you know, as me. well you know people mistake me for aaron eckhart all the time when they're <laughs> i wish people would mistake me for michael shannon but my wife does not <laughs> <laughs> she doesn't see it she doesn't see it no yeah they usually see me and then they're like oh wait you're too handsome to be aaron eckhart no that's that's not true <laughs> 
I can't even pretend. But no, me and uh, me and Aaron Eckhart uh, over on the Skype screen here are uh, on great terms because uh, you're a regular guest. Uh, pretty much, I've got you like set up almost like yeah. on a monthly basis here, and uh, I've been on true. your show numerous times. Now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. At least I've got you coming out about. Well, I have to pair it. I have to release them like you know once a month or so. Uh, and then when I lost my computer recently, <laughs> I had to do it. That was the only one I had. In the, in the in the can, ready to go. So, so tell uh, once again, tell our listeners uh, where they can uh, listen to your various uh, podcasts and where they can interact with you on Twitter, uh, hopefully Instagram, so they can see how close you look like Aaron Eckhart, the spinning image. <laughs> I need to start. I need to start an Instagram that's me and Aaron. <laughs> I'll just it'll just be side by sides. <laughs> so uh, I'm involved in a few little podcasting projects. You can follow uh, me on Twitter at break a brain that's break a brain and uh, the broken brain is of course my main sort of uh, deal uh we've we've got a couple of those that i have now dug out of a, of a hard drive of a ruined computer that will be coming out uh, pretty quick here once i get the editing done on them uh we've got some uh, some, some some cool messages there it, it's all about uh, mental health and wellness and kind of being yourself working through trauma working through addiction different kinds of things that get in the way of us uh, kind of being who we are and the whole idea is breaking your brain is in uh, blowing your mind, breaking your brain around something interesting is, is what we're kind of going for there. I'm also involved with a, a podcast called Amygdala Magazine. It's all about storytelling and uh, mostly writing where I interview artists and writers and, uh, and talk about that, which is ties to a, a, a short story contest that we're having at the end of this month where we're hoping to get a collection of some interesting, cool stories. Uh, I'm also involved with the Core Temp Arts uh, Podcast Network. Uh, the TV Ate My Brain podcast is kind of a circular uh, we, we cycle through different hosts and talk about different TV programs and shows and just finished uh, covering 112263 hike I think it's called uh, a like time travel better. show <laughs> you, we, we improved it a lot we, we came up Liz and I came up with a lot of rewrites for that uh, that you can you can listen to if you listen to TV Ate my brain well then sorted. Not everything. Why do you think she's really you? From her point of view, on mine. She wasn't exactly gagging for it when she left you six months ago. The question is, do you trust her? One considers her timing, of course. Getting nicked within a week of the plane going down. Suggestive, even borderline suspicious, but hardly conclusive. Well, she is some sort of Trojan horse sent in by IMF to spy on us. Why should I deny myself the pleasure of a ride or two? Or don't you think I can learn more from her than she can from me? I do! I do! I do! I do! I do! Some of us have the burden of sex to deal with. And I may or may not know why she thinks she's here. But I'm willing to take the risk. Because you... I 